everyone, welcome to Nature's Pulse, where I review the week's environmental news. My name is John Lieber. Let's get started with this week's first article. Okay, so what we have here is an amazing anomaly and an indication of how evolution works. So this uh, finding was published in Forbes, and uh, it is the capture of a rose-breasted grosbeak, which uh, was found to be half male and half female. Uh, it was captured in Pennsylvania. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to go and actually Google the image of, uh, of the bird because it's incredible how symmetrical the differences are. Uh, you can really see uh, exactly wh which part is male and which part is female. So it's, a, it's an amazing anomaly. Um, I guess this can happen where two different sperms can fertilize the same eggs um, and there's a biological process behind that. Um, I don't know the exact specifics of it, but it kind of, uh, it goes to show how evolution produces outliers. And sometimes we often hear about the outliers that have the evolutionary advantages, but oftentimes those outliers do not have evolutionary advantages and die out quickly. Uh, but within those outliers is the very richness of evolution. So here, the reason that it's not an evolutionary advantage is because there is no, that the, the bird will not be able to have offspring. Uh, and that is cited here in the article. So I just want to go through and make sure I didn't uh, miss anything, but it's uh, quite uh, an amazing find. So these birds are incredibly rare. Out of more than 750,000 birds captured during almost six decades of bird banding, the Powder Mill Nature Reserve's Avian Research Center has recorded fewer than 10. So it's quite neat to see uh, how evolution is still happening to this day. Okay, group member, and for people who are not aware when I refer to the group, I'm talking about the Environmental Professionals Group, which I encourage everyone who's an environmental professional to come and join on Facebook. Um, but if you're not an environmental professional, you can like my Facebook page, which is John Lieber Ecology and Planning to get the same content there. Uh, so a group member, Pat Brown, she posted um, uh, an some photos of natural swim, swimming pools, which I did not know were a thing. So uh, for everyone listening on the podcast, essentially it's a pool that is surrounded by lake-like conditions. So the description to go along with it, a need for more plants, because um, right now in the photo, it's essentially gravel uh, with a few plants along the side, but it does, and then some of it has uh, like a deck and a dock built out to to it, which makes it look very natural. But also I agree that there's uh, certainly a lot more room for plants and that they could probably eat up the nitrogen and prevent algae blooms. But it's a very cool concept and a lot could probably be done with it. So I'd, uh, again, I'd love to hear what you guys think about natural swimming pools. The pictures here that are posted are very landscape friendly. Um, there's lawn all around it and there's just like decoration plants, meaning these lawns are probably heavily fertilized, probably sprayed and yeah, same with the, the shrubs around it, meaning the swimming pool is probably contaminated completely. So uh, 
I'm sure everyone listening here would take a more ecological approach, but the concept is very cool and intriguing to me. So here is just a, uh, a fun question and answer. Uh, it kind of shows the value in having uh, such a good network of environmental professionals. So uh, Eel, uh, a group member, asks, Hi, I've been talking with a friend who is about to go off and work on an icebreaker ship, and we have been discussing the Arctic and climate change. In uh, brackets, I am a geologist, so I know some things. Uh, I don't didn't know how to answer the question. Do icebreakers have a big negative impact on sea ice? So I wondered if anyone could help us by pointing out some places to find information on the impact of icebreaker ships on the Arctic sea ice. Thank you. And an awesome answer here. Uh, there's a bit of a confliction here between two answers. Uh, the first answer says, no, not really. And then uh, he's quoting, in late June, when the sun's energy is strongest, the total sea ice extent is around 10 million square kilometers. An icebreaker cruising through the ice for 1,000 kilometers and leaving an ice-free wake of 10 meters would open an area of water 10 square kilometers over the entire cruise. In contrast, the Arctic sea ice cover decreases by an average of 9 million square kilometers or 3.5 million square miles each year during its melt season, an area the larger than the United States. In total, researchers estimate that the number of icebreakers traveling the Arctic at any time is usually less than three. So the actual contribution is minuscule, only one part in a million is total ice cover. And then a second more nuanced response uh, on kind of a, on, a, on the other end, Okay, so next we have a good news environmental story for once. Uh, group member Kara Nuffman says, I just want to share some happy news in the environmental world. A local project I've been assisting with has been approved for funding by the U.S. Corps of Engineers. Up to 25 million will be appropriated for the amazing Upper Mississippi River Restoration Project, which will restore fish and wildlife habitat in one of the largest natural bays in the Mississippi River. So that's amazing. And uh, everyone in the group is excited about that. So I uh, can't wait to see the results. And uh, it's ty the type of projects we need to see much, much, much more of. I wanted to stop quickly and talk about this very important article that Isabel uh, shared. And Isabel was interviewed in uh, an episode of Environmental Professionals. Uh, she's an incredible uh, marine biologist who does work with coral reef restoration. I learned so much about coral reefs from her uh, and still stay in contact with her. And she shared this piece about shifting baseline syndrome, which uh, I'd only found out about uh, maybe a year ago, and I think it makes so much sense. Uh, essentially, it is the phenomenon where with each generation, the way that we are raised the change that we grew up with is our baseline. So for example, one generation knows may know a very healthy, clean ecosystem, but then by the end of their age it's degraded, but then the next generation is born into that de degraded ecosystem and that's all they've ever known. So then they, by the time they grow up, it's more degraded, but their baseline is that it was already half degraded perhaps. So it's the baseline is always changing. We don't see the full spectrum uh, we have somewhat generational amnesia. 
and uh, David Attenborough's new documentary really does a fantastic job of demonstrating this uh, this shifting baseline syndrome because he documents all the changes over his lifetime of different ecosystems he studied and the degradation, the, the tragedy that's happening to the natural world. So when he, uh, the next generation follows him, the baseline will, the, will have shifted so drastically in just one lifetime that uh, it's, uh, it's hard to, for us to not have that amnesia, but it's important that we are aware of it. So uh, the article that she shared is, a, a, is among coral reef scientists. Uh, and the citation she provides here is 70% uh, of the respondents who were under the age of 40 stated that they are never witnessed the Acropora dom species dominated reef, whereas 96% of the experts over the age of 60 stated the opposite. This demonstrates the dramatic change in the interaction with the coral reef from one generation of experts to the next. So that's why it's incredibly important for us to know our history and make sure that the baseline is not shifting uh, where it's not supposed to. Certainly need to stop and uh, just take some time to look upon and recognize the incredible 2020 wildlife uh, photograph of the year. Uh, if anyone hasn't seen that, make sure 100% to go and look at this one because I've just looked at it for a very long time and marveled at, uh, at what it's showing. So uh, it is a photo uh, shot by a hidden camera in a forest in the far east of Russia, and it's of a Siberian tiger embracing a tree. So I don't know too much more about uh, the photo, but what the animal is actually doing. I assume it's um, doing some sort of grooming, but it is really incredible. And I heard someone describing it as it appears as if the, the, the tiger is one with the forest. And it certainly seems like that because uh, with all the fall leaves on the ground, it, uh, it kind of integrates into the body of the tiger incredibly um, and it shows what's at stake and uh, how protecting or restoring our crippled natural world is certainly one of the most urgent of causes because we can't afford to lose this sort of natural wonder and beauty that is out there. So uh, one more thing to add about this week, uh, I did an, another episode in, of Environmental Professionals. This was episode 15, and I did that with uh, Lynn Nagayan uh, of Vietnam, and she studied water resources, and I had a great conversation with her about water resources in Vietnam. Uh, she's a relatively new graduate, but it just, uh, it was interesting to talk about uh, some of the the contexts and challenges that uh, Vietnam has with its water resources, and uh, just about her outlook with her with with uh, with her career, and uh, she chose to ch to take a gap year, and I found it really interesting um, hearing her perspective and why she did that and the value that it can have doing something like that, uh, taking a step back, uh, not jumping into something can have uh, for a professional. So please uh, go to my YouTube channel, which is Jungle Capital, uh, or just type in Environmental Professionals, episode 15, and, uh, and watch that and let me know what you think.
before we go, I just want to note about some of the content that I've been consuming. Uh, lately, I'm pretty obsessed with evolutionary biology. Uh, I usually, it's, this is a fairly new interest for me and it's completely addicting. Uh, I kind of got started, I, I asked some for recommendations from the group and there was some evolutionary biologists that uh, I found interesting, but I just didn't jive with quite the same. Um, I guess everyone's first introduction is probably Do uh, Dawkins. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I Of course he's contributed. He's really the, um, you know, the grandfather for, for many of the concepts that evolutionary bi biology has provided, but uh, I just don't click with his personality quite as much, but you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I guess I, my addiction started when I did read Darwin's uh, book of, of, uh, of on the nature of, or on the origin of species. And uh, that kind of got me started, but then I uh, kind of took a gap and now um, I've got hooked on, on Brett Weinstein and Robert Sapolsky. So uh, both of them, their content is just so rich. Uh, Robert's a bit more elusive. Uh, you can read his book. Uh, I forget. It's primates. Uh, something about primates. And I read that book. Uh, it's an audiobook version as well. Uh, his story is insane. He uh, basically went to. So he's from New York, but he went to Kenya when he was like 20 to study baboons, and he did that for 30 years found incredible findings and uh, his uh, knowledge of evolutionary biology, primate behavior is, as, is applicable to, uh, to humans as well and to the way that we see the world. And Brett Weinstein, he uh, is a general evolutionary biologist, uh, but he's been caught up in some political things. Uh, but it's, again, just having an evolutionary uh, lens on, on the events that are happening uh, politically, uh, but every every topic can have an evolutionary uh, lens applied to it, and it just makes things make sense. And I like when things make sense, so that's what I'm obsessed with lately. So that's it for this week's episode. If you have any questions, please leave it in the comments, and I'll be sure to answer it next week. Thanks, everyone.